Please turn with me in God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew, chapter 1. And we're going to take up our reading in Matthew's Gospel at verse 18 and read through verse 25. will be our text for this morning. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, beginning at verse 18 and reading through verse 25. And this is God's own word, so let's pay careful attention to it. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, we've been considering the, the Christmas story as it develops in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, usually around this time of year, preachers have two choices. You can preach from Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, or you can preach from Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. Um, you can do something else, but you do it at your own peril. Uh, those are the two safe things to do um, at this time of year, to preach the, the account of Christ's birth from one of those two Gospels. Luke's gospel is more extensive in the information it gives because Luke is writing as a historian. And so as a historian, he's concerned to give us a lot more of the facts, the who, the what, the where, the when, the why. Um, Luke spends his time on those things. So a lot of the details we know, what time of year it was and who was emperor and who was governor and why were they in Bethlehem? You know, Luke gives us all those details. Matthew's not so concerned with all of that because Matthew's not writing as a historian. Matthew is writing as a chronicler of the king who's coming. Matthew is concerned with telling the story from that perspective, uh, the how, how the king came into the world. And the genealogy has been concerned with the king. It's been concerned with the royal line created, the royal line in uh, crowned as the kings come, the royal line in collapse, um, and now the royal line complete in the coming of the Messiah. Um, we see all of these things. That's what, that's what Matthew is focused on. He's focused on the king. He's focused on the lineage of David and how Jesus comes into the world as the true son of David. Um, and so that's what Matthew is concerned with telling us. Uh, that's why he doesn't give us the details that we have. Uh, John Calvin puts it this way, Matthew does not as yet relate the place or the manner of Christ's birth, but the way in which his heavenly generation was made known to Joseph. Um, Joseph is really the central 
figure next to Jesus in this passage, um, who, who is the son of David, who hears of the promised son of David coming into the world and how he reacts to that news as a son of David. Um, and so that's what we want to think about, that as Joseph comes to know in this passage that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is the son of promise, and that Jesus is the son of David. And that's how we want to look at this passage together this morning. Uh, Joseph and all of us with him come to know that Jesus is the son of God, the son of promise, and the son of David. Uh, Jesus is the son of God. Uh, That's an important thing to come to in this passage, um, because as the passage begins, Joseph is confronted with a serious problem. Right, He's engaged to a woman, and she's pregnant, and he is not the father. Um, and that confronts him with a serious problem. Um, obviously, like anyone else, Joseph would have made the presumption that the child was conceived in adultery. I mean, really, what other option could there be? Right, Absent an angel telling you that there's another option, that's the, the, safe, the safe assumption that anyone would make in Joseph's position. Uh, Joseph and Mary are betrothed. We don't, you, we don't have that category. That's somewhere between being engaged and married. So if you were betrothed to someone and they died before you got married, you would be considered a widow or a widower. Um, if you were betrothed and you broke it off, it would be considered a divorce. Um, so it was a little more than being just engaged as we have it, uh, but it wasn't quite being married. You didn't live together yet. You weren't sharing the same household or the same bed. You were still living apart, maintaining single and celibate holy lives um, apart from one another until coming together. So we don't really know this category, but the Bible does tell us that to break up this relationship, Joseph was going to have to divorce Mary. Um, it also tells us that Joseph was a just man, and so that he resolved to divorce her quietly. Uh, that's significant because there were, there were two ways in such, a, in such a case that you could get divorced. One was to make it very public, um, to make it very well known. And you didn't do this just to be mean, right? Um, Joseph wouldn't have just been mean, but you would do it to sort of publicly declare, I'm innocent in this matter. Um, because if you're engaged to someone, who are they going to assume the father is? Uh, the, the person she's engaged to. And so a public divorce was a way of maintaining your innocence, your righteousness in the public eye. Of course, it involved making a very public declaration that this child was conceived in adultery, um, and it would have had very serious consequences for Mary. Uh, in Deuteronomy 24, the death penalty is, descri- is prescribed for someone in that situation. Um, now, they probably wouldn't be carrying out death penalties at this time in Israel, so it's not exactly like her life was on the line, but her reputation certainly would have been ruined. She would have been disgraced by this kind of public denunciation. And Joseph is aware of that. And so Joseph is not going to choose that sort of public option that would show him to be righteous, but would also put Mary through that, he resolves to divorce her quietly. That was the other option you had, just do it privately, um, but before two or three witnesses. It didn't need to be a public thing. It didn't need to be uh, announced widely. Um, 
And that probably would have meant that Joseph then would have borne some of the disgrace. If word got around that they'd been divorced and that he'd done it quietly, the assumption might have been that he was the guilty party, um, that, that she was pregnant by him. Um, and so in, in agreeing to do this quietly, he's doing something that might invite him to take more of the shame, might take more of the disgrace. But in any event, it certainly would have been a kindness to Mary to do things this way. And I think that's significant, right? Matthew's not giving us the extensive details that Luke is giving us. So if this were Luke's gospel, we might just be tempted to think he's just being extensive in all the people he's talked to and giving all the details. Matthew's account is not really extensive. So why does Matthew get into this whole thing? Why does Matthew get into what Joseph was thinking and what he'd resolved to do? Because he never went through with it. Why is that important? Why is that significant to us? Well, it helps to explain what it means that Joseph was a just man. Um, or as we sometimes we translate that, a righteous man. What does it mean to be just? Well, if you look it up in a dictionary, it would say being in accordance with what God requires. Um, and what is, what, is true, what is truly to be just? What is truly to be godly and have a concern for God's law? We'll think of how the law is summarized by the prophet Micah. To do kindness, or to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It shows us something of what it means that Joseph was a just man that he not only understood the letter of the law, but he understood the spirit of the law. He understood what the law required, but he also understood that part of its requirement was to be kind and to love kindness. I think Matthew wants us to understand what kind of man Joseph is. We don't get a lot of details about Joseph in the Gospels. We get a lot more detail about Mary we know a lot more about Mary. This is one of the few things we know about Joseph. He was the descendant of David, and he was a just man. And he did whatever the Lord called him to do. I think he's being held up to us as a just man. And especially when we think of that in, in considering the, the lineage of David that we've read from, from the passage, the, the genealogy that we've considered and the people who we've seen in that genealogy that have at times been a rogues gallery. We're being told by Matthew, here's a true son of David who does justice, but who also loves kindness and walks humbly with his God. Here is a just man um, who wants to do the kind thing and needs to be made to understand that this is not a son of adultery that Mary is carrying, but this is the true son of God. And so to this just man whose who's purpose to do a kind thing by his betrothed comes this angelic announcement to him that this child has not come by adultery, this child has come by the Spirit of the Lord. Um, and so Joseph is told um, in verse 20 
As he's considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Um, Something that doesn't usually happen to us. While we're thinking about something and meditating on a course of action, an angel appears to us and tells us what to do. Um, tells, us that, tells Joseph that he doesn't need to be afraid to take Mary as his wife because this is not a child that has come by adultery. This is a child that's come by the operation of the Holy Spirit. Um, Matthew does not want us to miss uh, this, this point. He also had said that in describing uh, the, the, the generation of Jesus in verse 18. Right, that before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Matthew also wants to make that point clear, uh, not just so that we see that it was clear to Joseph, but that it's so it's clear to us as readers that the child is from the Holy Spirit. Um, we, we read about that in Luke's gospel as well, the announcement to Mary. Uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That this is a child by the operation of the Spirit and that this child by the operation of the Spirit is the Son of God. Um, and the activity of the Spirit is important for how Matthew is telling the story. He's telling the story from the perspective of the king, from the promise of the king who is coming, Um, and from the whole history of Israel that was pointed towards this coming, and wanting to make it clear, this coming now is at the operation of the Holy Spirit. That's significant. Because the whole Old Testament had looked forward to a time when the Spirit of God would be active in power. And we get we think of the prophecy of, of Isaiah in Isaiah 11, uh, well known to us. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. God's people are always looking for a day that was coming when the Spirit of God would be active in a particular way. Um, active in a way that would signal a time of fulfillment. Right? It's a vivid picture that Isaiah uses, this stump that has been cut off. Suddenly there's a, there's a shoot growing out of this stump. A sign that this stump still lives and is growing into a new kind of tree. Um, and is going to be represent a person that comes who's anointed with the Spirit of the Lord in power. This is a time of fulfillment. And so Matthew wants his readers to understand, this is that great day God's people have been waiting for. For the Spirit to be active in a new way amongst the people of God. Uh, to shower his grace upon God's people in a new and particular way. And he's going to do that through this son that he has brought into the world. This is the sun that will shower that grace on God's people. And what is the grace that this sun will bring? What will this sun do for the people of God? Well, it's beautifully stated in verse 21 this child will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. That's why they're to call his name Jesus. 
He will save his people from their sins. That's the grace that this child will shower upon God's people. And all the words there are important. He will do it. Right? God's people are always waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. Um, and, and ever since God's people have existed, they've always existed in hope of the promised child to come. Even if you read all the way back into Genesis and Adam and Eve, you know, when they have their first son, Eve says, with God's help, I have brought forth the man. She might be thinking this is the promised seed that God was, was saying would come, who would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, who would crush the serpent's head. Maybe this is the man who's come. Right? And every, every daughter of Eve has lived in that hope that she's bringing forth the child of promise that will come into the world. The second Adam will come and save his people from their sins. And, and all throughout God's, God, the history of God's people, they've been waiting, waiting for the child to come. And now Joseph is told by the angel, you call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You don't need to wait for another savior anymore. The savior has come. He's come and he will save his people from their sins. He will finally be the one who comes into the world and who can deliver God's people from their sins. It's a reminder that that's the most desperate deliverance God's people need in every age. Right? There might have been people who, listening to that message, would have loved for the angel to have said, and he will save their people from the Romans. And maybe we as people living today could say, and he will save his people from whatever worldly afflictions are, are presently on our minds. Um, but Jesus comes to save us from our most desperate need, our sins. That was the true bondage of the people of God. That was the true problem of the people of God, their sins. That's been our true problem in every age. And this has been the problem that no son of David has truly been able to address before now. Those kings were not able to save their people from their sins. Right? Good kings could tear down altars. They could destroy false worship. Good kings could buy God's people more time. Um, good kings could save God's people for a time but they could not save God's people from their sins. When you match the wickedness of Manasseh against the righteousness of Josiah, Josiah's righteousness was not enough to put out Manasseh's sin. There's no other king who's been able to save his people from their sins until this king comes. And that's the good news the angels announce. You call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will do what no king has been able to do to save and to deliver. And the good news for all of God's people reading this text whenever you're reading it is he came to save you from your sins. There's not any one of God's people who are excluded from this great announcement. He's come to save all of his people from their sins. All the people who had come before him, all the people who were living at the time of his coming, all the people that have lived since his coming. He came to save his people from their sins. And he is able to do it because he is the Son of God. 
brought into the world by the power of the Holy Spirit to save God's people. How different it must have been for Joseph the next time he saw Mary. Um, to, To see her pregnant and to see that child moving and feel the child moving in her belly. To know that this was not something to cause concern, but this was actually the realization of the greatest hope of God's people. Right there, right within, within reach, the Son of God coming into the world. Uh, what a great testimony. Matthew wants us to understand that. This is the Son of God who will take away the sins of his people. Um, he's not just the Son of God, but he's also the Son of promise. But Matthew also draws our attention to the promise that was made in the time of Isaiah, the prophecy that was made about this one who is coming into the world. Um, This promise that was made centuries earlier to another king. Um, Again, you see how how Matthew has kings on the mind, um, has kings in his perspective, because this prophecy of Isaiah was made to a king, uh, to a king who was in a particular predicament, who was facing difficulty, who was facing trouble from an alliance of foreign invaders. Uh, This was a sign that was given, a prophecy that was made in a time of deep trouble. Um, And so we, we can see how appropriate it was to call to mind this prophecy made in a time of trouble, when God's people are still in a time of occupation by a foreign power. Um, And anytime God's people read this prophecy, we can be assured that in some sense they're in trouble. They're surrounded by difficulty. And Matthew brings to the fore this prophecy that was made at the time of King Ahaz. You probably all knew that, I'm just reminding you. Um, It was made to King Ahaz. King Ahaz was facing um, trouble all around his kingdom. He was facing foreign oppression. They were all coming for him. Um, And he was walking around his city, worried about the defense of the city, uh, worried about how things would go. Um, And it was in that moment of fear that Isaiah came to him with a word from the Lord. Came with a word to encourage him as the king of Judah, as the descendant of David, to put his trust in the Lord. In a profound sense, it was a time of fear for King Ahaz, and the word of the Lord came through Isaiah, and Isaiah was saying to Ahaz, in God's name, trade your fear for faith in the Lord. Trade your fear for faith in the Lord. Um, He came in Isaiah 7.4 and said to Ahaz, in God's name, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. What of your enemy's plans it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. All these people that are coming against you, their plans will fail. The Lord is telling you their plans will fail. What they're planning to do will not come to pass. And so he's urged by Isaiah in Isaiah 7, 9, if you are not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. Faith was what David's throne was founded on, right? Um, If Yankee Stadium was the house that Ruth built, then David's throne was the throne that faith built. 
That was the foundation of the thrones of the kings of David, the kings in David's line. And this son of David is being told by the prophet, stand firm in the faith. And if you're not firm in the faith, you won't be firm at all. God's telling you that what they plan is not going to pass. Trust in him. And then he says something remarkable to King Ahaz. In Isaiah 7, 11, he says, Ask a sign of the Lord your God and let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. The Lord is promising you that he'll do that and you pick a sign that you want. Any sign you want to assure you that God is going to do what he's promised and God will give it to you. How many of us would love to be in that position, right? We have enough tough, tough time with faith. Imagine God saying to you, look, I'm promising to do this, and I will give you a sign, whatever you want. Maybe you can think about that, boys and girls. If God would promise to give you a sign, whatever you want, what would you ask for? Um, and Isaiah Ahaz is told, ask for anything. And his answer is tragic. He says, I will not ask for a sign. I won't put the Lord to the test. Um, And Isaiah is sort of crushed because he sees that as such a lack of faith. It sounds good, but it's totally wrong. It's not testing God to ask for something God's commanded you to ask for. It's just a testimony that he has no faith that he won't stand firm in the faith. He won't ask for the sign. He won't carry out the command of God. He would rather cling to his fear than to God by faith. And so what does God do? Does God abandon him? No, he says, you know, I offered you a sign as a, as a present persuader, something I would do for you now that would confirm my word, but I'm still going to give you a sign It's just going to be a sign that will come 700 years from now. And here's the sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. And you'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You won't ask for a sign, well, the Lord will give you a sign anyway. And that's the sign. 700 years later, a sign that would confirm the truth of God's word, that he protects his kingdom and he cares for his people. That's what this sign would represent. That's what it had meant to represent to King Ahaz in that moment. That there's a God in heaven that protects his kingdom and cares for his king. And he wouldn't take that sign. And so God says, well, I'm going to give you that sign anyway. And when that sign comes true you'll know that I'm a God who protects his kingdom and cares for his people. And what greater fulfillment of that sign could there be than Jesus coming into the world? What greater confirmation could there be that God protects his people and cares for his kingdom than when God himself comes to be in the midst of his people? Right, he says, when that sign comes to true, you can call that child Emmanuel, which means God with us, because at that moment, God will be with you. It'll be a sign that nobody can miss, not just because a virgin has conceived and born a son, but because that son will come into the world as God in the flesh. God with us, 
and God for us to save us from our sins, a measure of how much God cares for and protects his people. The God who says, I will be your God and you will be my people comes now in the flesh to be God with his people and for his people. This is the son of promise. This is a son of promise who reminds us just how much God cares for and protects his people. This is the great sign in the world that the plans that are raised against the kingdom of God are doomed to fail. Because you can raise against this kingdom the powers of the whole world and they will be matched against God who is with us. And what that promise was meant to show God's people is when you match the whole weight of the world against the weight of the God who's with us, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's no reason to be afraid if God is with us and God is for us. It was a lesson that Ahaz should have learned. It was a promise that God had made and it's the the reality that now comes into the world. You can trade your fear for faith in the son of promise because he's the sign and the fulfillment that God does what he's promised to do, that he protects and cares for his own. Trade your fear for faith. Because if he's with us, who can stand against us? Are you afraid of anything this morning? I'm going to go ahead and guess you are. There are things I'm afraid of this morning. Uh, Martin Luther, writing his Christmas book, said there were things that he was afraid of. Recounting the message of the angel, he sort of reflects, you know, the angel comes to those shepherds in the field in Luke 2 and says to them, fear not. And I love Luther's response. So the angel says, fear not. I fear everything. I fear death. I fear the judgment of God. I fear the world. I fear hunger and the like. This is Martin Luther speaking. But then he writes this. The angel announces a savior who will free us from fear. You don't need to be afraid anymore if God is with you and for you to save you from your sins. When God says, fear not, what is there left to be afraid of? Faith and fear are opposites. They can't live together. Faith drives out fear. I love what the Old Testament commentator E.J. Young wrote. He said, faith in God removes fear of heart. Consider Proverbs 3, 25 and 26. Be not afraid of sudden fear, neither of the desolation of the wicked when it cometh. For the Lord shall be thy confidence and shall keep thy foot from being taken. Then Young says this, when God says fear not, there's nothing to fear. When God says fear not, there's nothing to fear. When God is with us, what is there to be afraid of? That's the promise that's realized in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He could say to us, as he said to Joshua, I'm the commander of the Lord's army and I have now come. And when he comes, who can stand against him? 
This is the promise that comes to, to Joseph. This is the promise that comes to us. This is the son of promise. Trade your fear for faith in him. Because if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's nothing to be afraid of. His promise is sure. He protects and he cares for his people. And this lesson that that former son of David failed to learn, this son of David learns. King Ahaz didn't get it. Joseph gets it. He realizes that this son of promise is the true son of David coming to the world. The promised son of David has come. That has important ramifications for Joseph. Will he recognize this child as the son of David? Because that's what's asked of him by God. To treat this child as if he is his own true and natural son. To recognize that this child that's come forth by a miraculous work is a true son of David as truly as Joseph is a son of David. And will Joseph recognize that? Will Joseph bring this child into his family? Because that's what essentially God is telling Joseph to do, to adopt this child and treat it as if it is his own child. And the purpose for that is not because he's not a, a true son of David until Joseph takes him in, but for the, for the perspective of the people all around them, this child would not be part of Joseph's family unless Joseph acknowledges him. Um, and so what's really being asked is, will you adopt this child as your own? That's the command that's put before him. Will you trust that this is a true son of David? Will you recognize the work that God has done? Will you accept this sign in faith and demonstrate your faith and trust by obeying the word of the Lord? Um, what I love about Joseph is we're never really told much about what he thinks about things apart from what we're told here about what he was thinking before the angel came. After that, it's all he just hears the word of the Lord and obeys. There's none of this talking back like King Ahaz. There's just obedience. He's called to bring this son into his family, and he does. And in that culture, that, that was all he needed to do. If he recognized his child as his, he was just as much his as if he'd been his own son. Adoption was no different than children by natural birth. They were considered the family in the same way. And so some people have you know, worried about, well, how do we make this connection between a son of David? He's not really you know, naturally Joseph's father. Well, we know, A, that this is a miracle, so the, re the regular rules don't apply, right? That for one. But we also know that just mere biology doesn't make a father. It takes more than just biology to be a father. That's what Joseph is agreeing to do, to be more than just the titular father of this child, but to be the true father to this child. And that's what he does. And if we think adoption doesn't make you really part of the family, we should think again, because why do we call God our father? Because we've been adopted into his family. Christ is the only natural son of God. We're children by adoption, but he's just as really and truly our father. 
And so Joseph agrees to recognize this child as a son of David, as God has promised. Um, And he shows himself to be a better sort of person by his simple and awesome answer to the angel's word. Right? And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What a wonderful final word on the line of David before Christ's coming. To hear this last son of David before the true son of David comes into the world, did as the angel commanded him. And he is the one that names him Jesus. The one who will save his people from their sins. And with that we have this wonderful recognition in this passage that Jesus coming into the world is the son of God and is the son of promise and is the son of David. God with us to protect us, God for us to save us. That's what the glory of Christmas is. To really recognize that that's who's come into the world. That's what this talk of peace on earth and goodwill towards men means. That Jesus has come for us. And so the call of Christmas is to believe this truth. To believe that Jesus is who he said he was. The son of God. The son of promise and the son of David who promises to save you if you put your faith and trust in him. Promises to save us from our sins. He promises to save us from all that would make us afraid. He always fulfills what he promises to do. So put your trust in Christ and you'll not be ashamed. You'll find as so many generations of Christians have found that he saves his people from their sins. May we all have that faith in this Son of God come into the world to save us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. He is the radiance of your splendor, the invisible image of the, the visible image of the invisible God. He is Christ our God, peerless among counselors, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father of the world to come, the model after which Adam was formed. For our sakes, he became a servant, taking on our flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the operation of the Holy Spirit. Enable us, Lord, to reach the end of this bright and glorious Sabbath in peace, forsaking all idle words, acting righteously, shunning our passions and raising ourselves above the things of this world. Bless your church, which you brought to yourself through Christ's own life-giving blood. Bless your servants whose trust is all in you. Show yourself as merciful as you are rich in grace. Save and preserve us and enable us to obtain those good things to come, which will never know an end. Christ our Lord, may we celebrate your glorious birth and the Father who sent you to redeem us and your Spirit, the giver of life, now and forever, age after age. Amen.